What should healthcare entities and manufacturers realize about the potential risks involving ransomware and other cyber attacks on medical devices? I'm Marianne Kolbesak McGee, Executive Editor of Information Security Media Group. Today I'm speaking with attorney Thomas Bernard of law firm Baker Donaldson. Tom, who is a former assistant U.S. attorney, will be speaking to us about potential liability and other issues involving medical devices and cyber attacks. So now, Tom, for starters, what sort of potential security and privacy issues are most worrisome from a legal perspective when it comes to medical devices? You know, there's a couple layers of that that we have to be concerned about. So I think from the personal perspective. You have individual for liabilities. You have individual liabilities for organizations. So let's talk about from the individual perspective. If I'm a consumer of health services, my personal uh, private and health information is stored in these devices. It's in many forms. So one of the liabilities I could risk as an individual is that information could be used to put together and, and steal from me, use, steal my identity, create liabilities for me, or potentially even blackmail me with private information. Let's say I'm in a job where I don't need my health information known because it may put my job at risk or something. There's all kinds of individual risks for people that use health services. For organizations, they have a duty to protect this health information from foreseeable risks. There are certain regulations, both from the traditional HIPAA-type perspective, but also their knowledge of these uh, risks and potential liability from uh, Federal Trade Commission to other organizations where they're obligated to to look out for these kind of things. So they could face liability from individual consumers who say, you didn't do enough to protect my information. They could face liability where certain trade secrets or other information, competitive information gets leaked to their competitors. They could get sued or face potential risk because they too could be blackmailed for using information that's stolen as part of these cybersecurity breaches. Additionally, I think the last thing is there's always the breach reporting requirement. So I think a lot of entities don't understand obligations reported in, in terms of when they have to report certain cybersecurity breaches. So you may face liability from that perspective. So Tom, based on what we've been seeing, what kinds of medical devices appear most at risk for cyber attacks? The phrase medical devices can have a very technical term in the sense that a, a medical device is something defined by the Food and Drug Administration under the Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act, but also there's a general concept of medical devices that the average person thinks of, which I tend to look at more broadly because in the rural world of where you have private information, there's a number of risks. So I'm going to talk about kind of generally four types of medical devices. One that are kind of the consumer products or health monitoring. These are things that you don't necessarily have to get from a doctor, but you could just you could just buy for your own personal use. This could be things like, you know, a Fitbit or a kind of a health app or something that's inside your phone. So those are the ones that are kind of personally consumer run and I think those have some serious vulnerability to the same extent that your iPhone or your mobile device may face risk of vulnerability, which it is tends to be very vulnerable to an experienced hacker, the health data that you may save on it in those apps and different things and your ability to uh, access online medicine could be vulnerable. Then you have different things that are wearable medical devices. These could be portable insulin pumps, things that deal with wireless protocols to communicate. These, they have special, sometimes depending on the security settings, they have some vulnerability because they are accessible through wireless communications and any kind of wireless communication given the right technology is susceptible to some degree. 
especially if it employs Bluetooth or other type of technology. That's the same with certain implanted devices like uh, pacemakers, because those deal with sometimes radio type frequencies and often through the internet. So anytime those devices, the core device to which they communicate with, kind of their base station or their home network, if those networks can be penetrated, these devices could be vulnerable. Lastly, you have kind of your stationary medical devices. This would be something more along the lines of if you're in a hospital and you're hooked up to a heart monitor or you're bedridden or it's monitoring things, a lot of those are run through the Wi-Fi networked and they're not all standalone. So anything that's hooked up to the internet has the potential to be susceptible. I mean, that's the number one thing I would say. If it's hooked up to the internet, it's a part of the internet of things, there's a certain susceptibility to it. What makes medical devices different than other kind of computers for vulnerability is computers are usually a network administrator is constantly running updates and patches to fix those for as threats and things develop. Devices tend not to be as regularly updated, so those devices that don't get updated for software and security tend to be at risk even more. So now, Tom, how does ransomware potentially differ from other cyber risks to medical devices? And are ransomware attacks potentially more dangerous? So ransomware, I guess, if you kind of go back, take a step back to what kind of what the purpose of ransomware is, traditionally, ransomware is just another extension of other cyber attacks. It's, it's kind of a, another end result. If you think of what cyber attacks are for, there's a number of reasons people engage in them. It could be for political or personal reasons, vengeance, things like that. But more often, what I think we're talking about in this context is people trying to make money. I mean, it's a small way to make money using these attacks. Traditionally, that may be in a sense of hacking somewhere to get personal information, which you could then sell and or steal a credit card. You know, that's one sense of making money off it. Ransomware is appealing to a lot of people because it's relatively simple, given the technology tools and, and cheap, given the tools that are available. What makes it effective is the strategy is it relies on traditional social engineering tactics to get access. Spear phishing, kind of the weakest link in the security process is usually the human element. So if it can if it can send spear phishing emails to all the employees in a hospital and just one has to click on it and download the ransomware that can get into the network. Why it's specifically helpful in a hospital, why this kind of is the game changer that I think a lot of people are talking about is in the past it's been for a business. You know, we we seize your data, you won't be able to conduct your business until you give us the money. And the money is usually, by the way, a very small amount, relatively speaking to what you think of in terms of ransoms, because their real goal is to get the money and not have the authorities called. If they make it too big, it's more likely the authorities are going to get involved. Now, what the threat with the healthcare industry, specifically medical devices, is the idea that you could ransom essentially someone's health, someone's livelihood, if it's a device that's keeping them alive. And I think that has a lot of people thinking, you know, the stakes are a little higher than just not being able to, you know, access your records when you're talking about the idea that someone could be essentially held hostage remotely. And I, I think a lot of people are worried about. So now, what are some of the special liability issues that might arise if a medical device is infected with ransomware, especially if the incident does result in a patient safety or privacy issue? I think it goes back to, you know, after there's a breach or an incident where you have a kind of cyber-related attack, you do a kind of analysis, a forensic analysis to see what the cause is. And I think that's where you'll find out where the liability risks are. 
So for instance, if it turns out that it was poor data management by the healthcare provider who was responsible for the HIPAA records, maybe there's some potential liability there. If it turns out that the manufacturer of the device, if it was a FDA-regulated device, failed to do the what their approval depended on in terms of security and design, if they didn't live up to that potential, there might be a, uh, some liability there. If it's that there was a general negligence that someone overseeing the device has failed to do their duty, there could be some negligent type claims there. So I think there's a number, it, it kind of, it goes with, once you forensically recreate what happened, you start to realize who potentially may be at fault. Tom, over the last two years, the FDA has issued voluntary guidance to manufacturers about medical device cybersecurity for their products, both pre- and post-market. Does FDA guidance for manufacturers have any relevance to medical devices that are sold outside the U.S.? And if so, how is it relevant? Let me answer it in two ways. One is If the scenario is that it's a device that is never going to be marketed within the U.S. and it's going to be marketed only overseas, one set, obviously there's one kind of set of guidance. If it's a device that's being sold in the U.S. and overseas, it's slightly different. So if it's sold in the U.S., it's got to go through the pre-market analysis and approval, which means all the standard things apply. And in addition, it would be required to comply with whatever guidance there is in the foreign countries that it would be sold in. If it is a device that is only going to be sold overseas, the FDA has guidance that talks about if it's manufactured solely for export, there are requirements not that that apply for marketing in the U.S., but do, do require that they comply with the specifications and laws of the countries which they're going to be marketed in and, and sold in. So it's, it's, I can't say exactly what the requirements would be, but there, if they're manufactured in the U.S., the FDA requires that they still meet the requirements of the country to which they're going to be sold in. So as far as you know, are U.S. manufacturers subject to any cyber-related guidance from regulatory authorities in other countries, or is the FDA in the U.S. the only regulatory authority at this point who issued cyber-specific sort of guidance? I believe that there has been some guidance put out by the National Health Service in, in the U.K., I don't know the details of what other countries have been. I have not personally dove in to look at that, but I think that a number of the countries do, I would imagine, do have guidance about their cybersecurity and device security. I read a, a significant report out of a, an article in Belgium that was written by the number of our authors, specifically was talking about some of the risks that they were seeing overseas with ransomware and the risks of medical devices. So I do think there are a number of regulations in other countries overseas that U.S. manufacturers would have to comply with in order to market in those countries. So bottom line, what is your advice to manufacturers and healthcare entities about taking steps to prevent their products and, or the use of those products in hospital environments and healthcare settings to avoid being the victim of a cyber attack that affects these devices? So I think two things, you know, divided into advice I would give to the manufacturers versus the advice to, say, hospitals that employ or prescribe or issue these devices. I think manufacturers, there's some really good guidance from the FDA on steps and things they should engage in pre-market. Uh, now, the way the FDA works is, you know, the FDA doesn't personally 
inspect or test for this market, pre-market compliance. What they do is, you know, the medical device manufacturer provides designs, and those are approved by the FDA. So I think the number one thing is to make sure that the designs you submit are things that you are actually employed in the production of these devices, and that they engage in the kind of security tests and protocols they're supposed to to make sure it's actually secure. They need to have steps in place for making sure they're updated to adapt, you know, the software to make sure it maintains security and that there should be ways for it should be easy for consumers to update those protections to respond to increasing threats. I think from um, if I was a, a healthcare provider, recommended healthcare provider advice on this is, you know, develop plans, have plans for what you're going to do when there's a ransomware attack, practice the plans, rehearse the plans talk through scenarios, and then you divide your advice into both prevention and response. And prevention is something that I think good training plan, really the social engineering and the you know, training individuals on safe IT practices and the risks, but then also being prepared for what you're going to do if something bad happens. And so it's not, you have backup systems, you have backup plans. And that's usually, there's a number of steps that we outline in some of the products we've created. And there's lots of reference materials out there. But I think preparation and planning and rehearsals are usually the best advice. Thanks, Tom. I've been speaking to Tom Bernard. I'm Marianne Kobasek-McGee of Information Security Media Group. Thanks for listening.